June of 2017, the city contracted with AK Consulting uh, to, to update the, 20, uh, the 2001 historic survey of downtown. Um, since June, uh, since that June, um, Alexa has been uh, uh, gathering information both on the historical and physical characteristics of um, downtown. It, in it includes kind of the inventory of the properties, identifies historic significance, outlines recommendations, and explains incentives available to property owners. Tonight, she's here to share with us the work that she has done. She'll present the findings and in her investigations and discuss the recommendations. After the presentation, there'll be an opportunity for us to um, ask questions and have a discussion. But then as a community, we, uh, it's kind of up to us to decide what's next. There's some information in the handouts that I think folks got about the difference between a National Historic District and a potential local historic district, um, which could have similar different boundaries. They might be open. Um, they, these, these opportunities might provide um, even more opportunities to preserve history and offer incentives uh, to the stewards of these historic buildings. Um, and the, this, as the city is exploring its own policy about incentives for local landmarks, and we explore options and have a community discussion, I would encourage the owners of these historic properties uh, and those who have business in, businesses in them to share with us ideas about how to make sure these historic assets continue to provide value. I encourage the citizens here and kind of all over Iowa City to take a look at this report and to really think about um, what these historic buildings mean to us as a community and part of our shared history. So back to tonight. Tonight is about the, the presentation of these findings. Uh, Alexa McDowell is with AK Consulting out of Minneapolis. She's been doing this work for nearly 20 years. While she's Minneapolis-based, a lot of her work is here, uh, has been here in Iowa. Um, and uh, she's got a, architectural, uh, a master's degree in architectural studies, uh, emphasis on preservation from Iowa State. So with that, she's going to tell us what she has found. So thank you. It's great to be back. Um, I think that probably I already see quite a few faces that I recognize, either that I met over the course of the last year, um, that I saw in the audiences when I spoke in the fall at the Ingler Theater, or in November when we met with business owners and property owners about uh, this process. So I'm really um, glad to see you return, so you can kind of see how this um, wrapped up. Or maybe I should say there's a semicolon here, Jenilee Swain. Is that the proper use of a semicolon? And, um, and my point being is there is the most important work is left to be done. And that's really in your hands, as Kevin pointed out. What comes from the work that's been um, completed over the course of really 15 months is now in your hands to decide what comes next. So. The project um, had three primary com components, and as I mentioned, we started in, the, in September of 2017 with a presentation of the Englert Theater that really focused on the um, previous work that had been done and how that was going to be reviewed and updated. Then there was the actual work of updating the document and a project report that came out of it. So as a reminder, 2001, this um, project was completed by Marla Svensson, who's a very capable architectural historian out of Wisconsin. And um, she defined at that time a survey area, or a survey area for that project was defined. And 
if you can see here this white, and I apologize that that's not dark enough, but please see my red here. That was the, the survey area in 2001. Um, at that time, a project report was completed and what's called a multiple property document form. And that's a form that the State Historic Preservation Office and the um, National Park Service uses, uh, it's, it's a different type of National Register form. Um, and, and I don't think it's important to go into the details about that unless I need to, but there was that form. It was completed. It provided historic context, meaning that she evaluated um, the, the context over time from the settlement of this community through the, uh, about 1980. Uh, she talked about the buildings that were constructed, what that meant within the context of the development of both commerce and architecture. Um, and then she provided a report that went with that and recommendations that um, were to be achieved. And her recommendation was that you place the downtown in the National Register of Historic Places. Um, and, and that work stopped at that point. So um, this project was a revisit of that. Um, the primary difference is that the survey area then was within this darkened area. So we have um, Iowa Avenue on the north, Gilbert on the east, Burlington on the south, and Clinton on the west. Um, of course, the important features in there, we know that the Ped Mall is here, just a little orientation for you. We're up here, of course. So that is the area that we focused on in this particular project. Um, Again, so we had our public presentation at the Inglert. In November, we did a presentation to uh, targeted for business owners and property owners because oftentimes there's a specific set of questions that those people need some additional focus on. That's why we did that. And then we had a series of one-on-ones um, from people that were identified by the city um, or who identified others that would be interested in speaking about this project. We talked to developers. We talked to architects. We talked to historic preservationists, we talked to city officials, downtown business owners, um, and members of the Historic Preservation Commission. I think I talked to about 15 different people, um, and, and, and a representative from the university, too. And let me just say, um, you know, I'm a historic preservationist, and so we know what my bent here is, right? And I thought that it was really important, and I really appreciated the fact that I had the opportunity to see what the various issues are in this community, because historic buildings are only useful if we can figure out how to use them within the context of the day that we live. Right? And so m many people brought up the concerns about modifications for um, retailers that are in those buildings today, how, how we modify a historic building to make it viable today. And those voices were very helpful to me, so I, I certainly appreciated that opportunity. So the different aspects of updating the multiple property document really were um, we're taking a look at this information that she had provided, which was kind of a, this general historic background, development of context, and we'll talk more about the, his, the National Register criterion, which is what context is uh, referring to. And she also outlined standards for evaluating historic resources. And let me say while I'm thinking about it is, is when I say evaluating 
uh, historic resources, I mean for eligibility to the National Register of Historic Places specifically. So all of the buildings were photographed um, within the, the revised survey area. I reviewed the document that she had created and updated language so that it reflected the current conditions. I replaced his, uh, uh, outdated images with new images. I introduced a number of historic images in order to provide a visual contrast between specific eras against today's uh, resources. Um, I developed an additional context, which we'll talk about more specifically in a few minutes about around urban renewal and the impact of that movement on Iowa City downtown. Um, and then I also looked at every building, which is about 115 buildings in the survey area, the modified survey area, and evaluated them for their ability or lack of ability to contribute to a potential downtown historic district or to stand as an individually eligible National Register resource. And um, I did include the original multiple property document in the report, so if anyone's interested in that, um, uh, comprised uh, Appendix B. So one of the things that Marlis did, which I thought was interesting, and so I wanted to just point it out, was she, she tallied the number of buildings in, in the area that she surveyed. And remember, her survey area was a little bigger than the current one, right? Um, and she broke those down by construction era. So um, since the 2001 survey, 15 buildings have been raised or demolished, right? 13 new buildings have been constructed. Um, and one National Register uh, listed building was raised as a, as a result of fire, and another one was listed. So we still have eight in the downtown. By era, Marlis noted that during the period from 1860 to 1880, there were 24 buildings constructed that still remain in the survey area. That's the case today. From 1880 to 1900, there were 20. Today, there are 13. And I add this information because the way that she referred to that count was a little misleading or, um, whoops, excuse me, uh, difficult to do an apples to apples comparison. So what I point out here is that 47 of the 115 buildings in the, the current survey area um, date to 1880 to 1900. From 1900 to 1920, there were 20 buildings during that era, um, represented, representing that era. Today, there are 19. 20 to 40, there were 12, and now there are only seven. 40 to 60, there were seven, now there's only three. And 1960 to 85, she didn't provide a count, but today we have 45 of the buildings downtown that date to that era or that period. I'm gonna grab a drink of water quick before I lose my voice. So what I think is important to point out is that even though there are 24 buildings in the downtown that were constructed during 1860 and 1880, there are not that many, let me use the other number, there are 13 from 1880 to 1900. This building, constructed in, in about 1888, clearly does not look like it was constructed in 1888. So what I think it's important for you to understand is that 
We have a lot of buildings that were constructed, you know, 150 years ago, but that's not what defines the historic character of the downtown. There's a really a wide cross-section of um, early construction dates and later refacades. So sometimes those the updates of facades are maybe just a replacement of windows or removal of an ornamental hood, but sometimes it's a complete facade replacement. And so the airliner, which has been here since the 50s, this is the character of the facade, the character of the building, and that character is what contributes to that streetscape, which is Clinton between Iowa and Washington. So the numbers are helpful, but don't be completely uh, oblivious to the fact they don't represent the character, okay? Um, I do want to point out some of the buildings that are important representatives of those eras. So this is the Franklin Printing um, building on the left. It's on the National Register of Historic, build, uh, Historic Places and its companion on the right. Um, I'll just put out there, I did not find a historic name for this building, so I call it a commercial building. If anybody's done some deep, uh, in-depth research about this building in particular, um, that, that we should know more about, I would welcome having it. Um, but so both of those are companions and certainly the Franklin Building retains a high level of historic integrity. This block of buildings is one of the most important blocks of um, late 19th century um, Italianate architecture in the downtown. It's comprised of the Stillwell Building on the left and the IXL um, left two bays of what was a larger building. So we have two bays left that are both independently owned today, but um, they all retain a high level of historic integrity. The Englert is an excellent example of construction dating to the first two decades of the 20th century. It again is on the National Register. Here we have the Yonkers building and the Kresge building, um, the two in the center, uh, constructed in the 1920s and 1930s, excuse me, 20s to 40s, and that's, those are both representative of that move toward um, franchise department stores and five and dimes. Then we have the, um, what, what is most familiar, familiar. I, I practiced that word earlier and cannot get that word out, so I'm gonna give up on it. We all know this is Gabe's, right? Um, this is actually the Eldon Miller building. Eldon Miller was a trucking company who constructed this building in the 50s, and it appears that um, he was out of business within a decade. Uh, there were a number of lawsuits, but that is who is responsible for construction of this building, and it looks very much like it did when it was constructed. This is the Meacham Travel Building. This is a building that was constructed during the urban renewal period. It was constructed to allow for upper story additions, and then that never happened. Um, but clearly, it's a product of its era of construction. So that's an overview of what the downtown looks like and how we can think about it. So the other piece of the project overview, reviewing what Marla Svensson had done and then moving that forward was to look at historic context development. And in, in the original multiple property document, the case for um, evaluating his, uh, the buildings for National Register listing was based on um, a historic association with the uh, history of commerce and a, a, a 
an association relative to downtown commercial architecture. And with the, the historic context, she talked about how the, how the town evolved over time. So you've seen the early images of the dirt roads and, and the early um, construction um, kind of a development from wood frame to uh, an early form of brick building, commercial building, how those changed. We just talked about how there are a lot of early buildings with new facades. So there's this evolution, evolution in play. Context development talks about why that development is significant, why it matters, and what it has to do with, with um, eligibility to the National Register of Historic Places. So all of that was already in play um, and very well written. And so I um, focused on urban renewal. Is there anybody in this room that doesn't have a sense of what urban renewal in Iowa City f was about or like? So this is a view of College Street prior to it becoming the Ped Mall. So we're standing, um, this is about where the Savings and Loan Building, Wells, Wells Far, um, Fargo and ICDD is in that building, and we're looking to the east, right? This building right here is where Plaza Center One is now. This is the film scene. Everybody with me? So. Obviously, the character of this space was predominantly about cars. It was a packed, busy street. Um, the character, that, that is not the only character, of course, because the appearance of the, the buildings play into the sense of space. But the difference from this, this view and today is the absence of cars in a large part. Then we have a view, we're standing um, in front of the hotel, which is now what, the Collegiate? Is that the new name? Pardon me? Graduate. <laughs> the Graduate. And we're looking due west along College Street. Plaza Center One is there at the right. We have the College Block, which is listed on the National Register of Historic Places on the left. This is during construction. So the ped, completion of the Ped Mall was near, near the, well, was in the late 70s. So there were a couple things that came after that. But the change, the, the, the construction of the Ped Mall, the, the evolution, the change of that being a traffic-related space to one that was an intimate, um, pedestrian-driven space, a gathering place, was night and day change in this space. Development of ped malls was a common occurrence related to urban renewal. Now, those of you that have read about urban renewal in Iowa City know that, that despite the really significant changes located in the survey area, of which we're looking at some of it, the largest change was actually on the west side of Clinton, where, what, 200 buildings were flattened, where Capital Center One is. So the impact to the downtown is significant in the loss of material, but it's also significant in the story of this community. And we'll get back to that later. This is 
not today. I looked down there today. <laughs> I don't think I could have gotten a picture. But um, so this is again exactly where we were just standing. We're in front of um, the graduate, and we're looking to the west with the college block there in the view on the left and Plaza Center One on the right. So <clears throat> the idea that the ur that urban renewal is important um, and needs to be considered in, in evaluating for significance of resources in the downtown was something that I looked at very hard. Um, and there are multiple difficulties about looking at it um, and considering it as part of a historic district or a potential historic district. Um, but the urban renewal is a nationwide phenomenon. There are communities, large and small, all over the country that were impacted dramatically by the urban renewal as a revitalization tool. Um, it was a defining moment in this community, and I, I don't think there's anybody who would argue that point. Um, and it had a major impact on the historic character of the built resources and also the Ped Mall. The, the urban renewal context in this, um, in the report that I prepared, runs from 1970 to 1985. That embraces the construction of things and things and things, which was actually built as the result of a fire. It was not planned to be part of the urban renewal program, which had discussions and planning had begun, begun, had begun a decade prior to that. Um, but because of the fire, um, the c construction of that building began sooner, and it was the first building completed and touted as uh, an urban renewal project. And it ends with the construction, the 1985 um, placed in service date of the Holiday Inn or the Plaza Center Hotel. We're going to go back to talking about um, the National Register and the cr criteria, but I, I want to leave it at that point for the moment. The next piece of this was, um, of, of the, the project was to look at the completed uh, site inventory form. So let me just explain that a site inventory form is a tool that the State Historic Preservation Office uses. It never goes to the National Park Service. It's a tool for the city and for the state. And when the state gets a site inventory form, Barry Bennett, who's a very capable and super nice guy that works at the State Historic Preservation Office, he takes the data off of that and he puts it in the database. So if you call Barry and you say, what do you know about the building at 102 South Dubuque, he can pull that up and send the information that he has. So they're a terrific tool, right? When, if you looked out on the, the table when you came in, there's a three-ring binder about this thick, and that constitutes the 115 Iowa site forms that were completed as part of this project. And, and so when Marlis completed the project in 2001, she did Iowa site forms. Um, and so, of course, there are some of those buildings that are gone, and there are new buildings that were constructed. So the new buildings all got their own site form, so that there's a site form for non-historic buildings and the, the, and the um, revisions of the ones that existed. Um, so I looked at those, then I evaluated historic integrity and determined which of those would be considered eligible. So what I want to talk about it is historic integrity. And this is a tricky business, let me tell you. Um, historic integrity, if you are talking about any kind of a resource, 
the National Park Service requires you to consider all of these uh, seven different criteria, right? We're gonna focus on the last two. And that is when I look at, when we look at a historic building and try to decide whether or not it retains historic integrity, and I should say historic resource because the Ped Mall is, is one issue in, the, in this downtown commercial area and it's not a building. Um, but we look to see whether or not its character defining features or its design is, is retained. And we also look at evaluating whether or not its materials have changed, and if so, to what degree. And then the trick is, where is the balance at the point where the historic integrity or the changes, loss of design or materials, is such that it's no longer a reflection of its historic integrity or its historic original historic appearance? or a, um, a later alteration. So think back about the airliner. The airliner, those changes are all 50 years old. So that building does not look like it did when it was built in 1888, but it does look almost exactly like it was when the facade was added in 1950. So that is a filter that you use when you try to decide the level of historic integrity retained. So. One of the resources that is extremely helpful for historians that are working in um, evaluating downtown commercial districts is um, a multiple property document that was done by Jan Nash Full called Iowa's Main Street Commercial Architecture. And let me just read you this because I think it helps us understand um, how you look at commercial architecture in a different way than you do at a house or a school, or a church. So judgments about the integrity will take into consideration the expected alterations and typical motivations of Main Street tenants and owners. Historic change is a constant on Main Street because merchants treated their storefronts and continue to treat their storefronts as an important way of inviting shoppers, both pedestrians and rolling, to stop in and buy something. And that's a reality that's true from the beginning of commercial sales to today. And that's why when we evaluate commercial buildings, we think about them um, differently than we do a house. A storefront changes and we expect it's going to change. So we think about them in their, in, in their totality and then we look at the storefront a little, a little bit differently. So all of, this, all of the buildings downtown were looked at through that filter. This is one of my favorite examples. And the building, Everybody knows this building, right? The Deadwood. And when I saw that building, before I did any research, I went, oh, that's a non-contributing building. And do you know why? Because I thought it was ugly. So my first hint to you is evaluating historic integrity is not about your personal aesthetic, right? There are a lot of buildings that I don't like the way that they look, but I, I just don't like the color purple, or I don't like a certain kind of window. But in order to understand whether or not it retains historic integrity, you have to have the context. You have to understand the history. You have to find historic images that help you see whether or not it indeed retains historic integrity. Now, I will not argue that there are no changes that have been done to the Deadwood, but what I saw that I had not seen is, where is that there? 
Do you see here that box? That's that box. There's a step back here, it's still there. There's a box display area, it's still there. You see, there's, this is all brick, it's all brick. Glass block, glass block. Bing, 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 this one's been changed. So the challenging thing about this building is, is that the awning is a distraction. The signage is a distraction from the character. It's not the only distraction, but it certainly is part of the distraction, and, and it could use some um, TLC. But when I go back and compare the historic images and look for the features that defined it at the time that change was made, then this building retains sufficient integrity to be considered a contributing resource to a historic district. Okay? The National Register of Historic Places. As much as anything I know, the National Register gets a bad rap. It does, and, and I understand why, because we as individual property owners, we, we, we live within the realities of our own um, economics, of our own desires, our own need to, um, to, to use our house or our commercial building the way that we need to, and the idea that someone might say to us, that's not gonna work, or if you do that, you have to do it the way we tell you to. That makes people nervous, and I get that. The National Register is, is um, a no-strings undertaking, right? It's a, it's a thing to do. It's primarily honorific. It's an important way of saying to people who come to your community, we recognize that our downtown is important and we're willing to do what we need to to value that downtown and we want you to know it, right? We, we, we put this on the National Register because this is a piece of who we are and we want people to, to understand that and to respect it and to enjoy it. It becomes a, um, a tool for bringing people to us. People are interested in history. People are interested in understanding more. People go to communities when there's something of consequence and of content to come and see. That's what the National Register does. It does not, in and of itself, protect the buildings or the resources that are located uh, in a district or individually listed. So, the Deadwood. If the Deadwood was a contributing resource to um, a National Historic District and the property owner wanted to take that facade off, they could do it. If he wanted to paint it gold with a big Hawkeye head on it, he could do that. He could change all the windows. And anybody that's in a historic district has the freedom to do that. That's not what we want them to do, of course, but it, it, there are no controls. Um, it's an honorific thing. What it does do is it opens up um, financial incentives and possibilities that don't exist if a building is not on the National Register individually or as a contributing resource to a historic district. And those historic tax credits in particular can be a, um, a tool that makes a project possible. Um, 
The historic tax credit is just briefly, the state is 25% and the Fed is 20. So on a project that has qualifying costs of $100,000, a property owner potentially can recoup 45% of the investment that they make. That's a huge amount of money. And if a building's not in the National Register, that is not available to them, zero. So it's a financial incentive that has very real value. The only thing is that if a property owner takes federal money, grant or historic tax credits, then they do have to follow the Secretary's standards and guidelines for rehabilitation. And I've always said, that sounds fair to me. You know, why, why would the federal government or the state or some entity give me um, cash money and let me do whatever I want to a historic building when the value of the building is that it's a historic building. I mean, they're, they're, they're promoting historic rehabilitation. So of, of course there's gonna be tax credit or there's gonna be guidelines that have to be followed. But if you don't take money, fair game. And again, I'm not promoting that idea. So, generally the historic uh, National Register is for properties that are 50 years of age or older. It's a guideline, it's not a hard and fast. There are four criterion that we look at to see whether something's significant. The ones that are um, italicized are the two that I looked at. Is there a historic association that um, creates a context for making this resource significant? Or is the architecture of this resource significant, um, specific to its contribution or its um, status as a commercial building? So sometimes that can be, well, we, should, we looked at the Stillwell and the XL block. Um, they're the most important remaining block of Italianate architecture that's left in downtown Iowa City. It's, they're individually eligible under Criterion C. Okay. Criterion Consideration G, this is the tricky one. So the, the National um, Park Service allows that there are exceptions to that, you know, one, two, three, four, five sort of uh, rules for National Register eligibility. Um, the one that we need to talk about is this one, which is resources that are less than 50 years old. So any resource that's associated with the urban renewal era is less than 50 years old. So when you make a case for registration for a resource that's less than 50 years old, you have to make a special case. You have to make, you have to tie it to something that's of exceptional importance. And the fact that this is an intact, um, urban re successful urban renewal project as it relates to the Ped Mall, um, elevates it and it's direct tied to this national movement that changed the face of communities across the country. My colleague um, today sent me an interesting um, report and it was done by um, Fresno State University and it was completed in 2013. And the study looked at 200 ped malls across the country that um, were constructed as a result of urban renewal projects. Of the 200 that they identified, 89% of them are gone. One of them is in Iowa City. 
Um, they also pointed out that, that, the, that, that one of the driving factors of a success of a PEDMAL was that it was relatively small in scale, like this one, and that it was anchored by a beach, which, you know, obviously not here, um, or a university. And so um, I am of a strong mind that the urban renewal story is an important one to tell, and um, that it's important to tell in this town. Okay, local landmark facts. So I, well, the one thing I wanna say to reiterate is the National Register and local landmark are two different things. They, um, something could be on the National Register and not be a local landmark. Lots of communities do not have local landmark status. But typically, local landmark ordinances are used to fill the gaps of historic, the National Register of Historic Places, which as I said, is no strings. It has no teeth. So in communities where the desire is not to just identify and honor their historic resources, it's to protect them. Those communities develop local landmark ordinances so that they use that as a tool to protect the resources. That's what local landmark is. It's an overlay. So if you think about um, this first layer is your national resource, your national registered district, the, the landmark status is an overlay. It can be a complete overlay, it can be a partial overlay, or it can be a um, targeted overlay. But it functions separately and the process is, um, because, because they're compatible in terms of how they evaluate resources, by and large, they often are done together, but um, they also can function completely separately. So as I said, something can go on the National Register and never be landmarked. Um, whether something is landmarked is up to the city, the Historic Preservation Commission, the property owners, and the people who live in the community. Um, the other thing that I think is really important to point out is that in Iowa City, the local landmark ordinance um, looks at exteriors. So they look at the exteriors when they evaluate for integrity, and they also look, for, look at the exteriors only when they um, are following design guideline or design review process. All right, so no um, review of the interiors. Pardon me. All right, so the project report includes summary of findings, the recommendation, and the appendices. And the appendices is the update of the, the multiple property document form. Um, the site forms are not included in the appendices because they're a gigantic separate thing. There's information there about historic tax credits, Jan Nash's um, multiple property document about the downtown, the commercial Iowa Main Street commercial and evaluating historic resources is in there, um, the secretary standards and guidelines, anything that I thought might be tools that people could use if they're interested in historic preservation, I put in there. So there are two major uh, ways that I reported the status of buildings. There's a table, and the table includes an image in the status, um, and when it was constructed, the historic name, and then there's also um, maps. 
On the tables, we designated National Register listed is an is NRHP, individually eligible, contributing um, I, meaning that it's eligible on its own, but if it was in historic district, it would be counted as a contributing resource. Key contributing is a resource that um, is considered to have accept, um, significance specific to Iowa City that does not necessarily meet the standard of the National Register. Contributing is a contributing resource. Typically, they've lost a level of integrity to make them individually eligible or maybe a key contributing, but they still contribute to a potential historic district. And non-contributing means that there's either they're either not old enough, um, they're not an urban renewal resource, they have been altered um, in a way uh, recently or um, in a way that detracts significantly from the historic integrity. This is just a look at this, so you can see when you take a look at the report, the number on the left is the site form number, so that's what the State Historic Preservation Office uses. There's the airliner, we know that one, the address, the historic name, and the construction date, and the slash just means it was built in circa 1888, but it was changed in 1950, and it's considered a key contributing resource to a potential historic district. So this is the resource map. So looking at this, everything in gray are non-contributing. So you can see that's a lot of gray. Those buildings are, um, by and large, new construction. So um, as I mentioned, there were 13 new buildings constructed. Um, you can see that the big impact is there on South Burlington and on Iowa Avenue. Um, has made a major impact on um, the historic character um, and the number of buildings that are 50 years of age or more, or uh, urban renewal buildings. The um, black indicates um, contributing resources. The red means they're individually eligible resources. Blue is uh, already on the National Register of Historic Places, and the gold indicates the key contributing buildings. Okay, recommendations. You guys have got to get this on the downtown, this downtown and the National Register. It's so important. It's just so important. Um, when I, you know, I look at a lot of downtowns, I felt really bad when I saw how many buildings were gone in this town. I mean, I felt so bad. There's so many wonderful historic images of Iowa City, and I'd look and I'd say, what is that building? It's gone. What is that building? It's gone. I, I mean, I can't tell you. It was, I've never felt that bad. Um, it, because it happens. It happens everywhere. I know it happens. But it has happened beyond, um, I don't know. It makes me feel bad. But what you have now is this condensed area, relatively condensed area, that re represents a broad range of construction eras. And you have some really beautiful buildings. Um, and even more importantly, you have some spaces that people want to be in. And that's huge. So that's my recommendation. Put the, bill, put the National Register, put the district on the National Register of Historic Places. And we'll, I'll show you the boundary that I'm talking about. 
Um, so here we go. Um, so we're, we, we're, we can talk more about this in question and answer, but what this, the, this is the project area, the dotted lines. Then we have the green is the proposed boundary for historic district. And it, has, it jogs around, someone asked me about why isn't this in here, the Carnegie Library. And it's because this is all gone. There's nothing left historic here, and it's so isolated by all of this non-historic around it. It's individually eligible, though. So the district includes this, this stretch along Clinton, which in its relationship to the old capital and the Pentacrest is so important. You know, this is where, this is where the commercial area started. This faces the capital, um, National Historic Landmark. These buildings are um, changed and evolved over time. There are some very important McDonald Optical, um, the Whetstone building down here on the end. Um, that, that represent and represent very well an evolution of architectural character over time. You also have the Ped Mall all along here. You have a, um, a kind of mixed collection of buildings along Washington, but some very significant buildings here, a couple National Register buildings. And, and the wonderful collection of buildings here and the sense and feel of that space. That's the proposed boundary. So um, to, to kind of answer some questions in advance and um, uh, uh, how that works or what the National Register would entail, a nomination process, and it is a process. It's, a, it's about going back and adding to the work that was done so far. So looking at the historic context and refining them to the level of a National Register nomination. Developing the urban renewal context, which will take some um, considerable work because it's going to require evaluated analysis against other communities that were altered by urban renewal changes. Um, and as I mentioned, it's a special case criterion consideration G, which means uh, uh, an expanded focus on uh, why it's significant and why it's significant relative to other things. So that's a big part of it. Um, I will tell you that there are some buildings that I said were individual, were not individually eligible, but if I took time to go in and evaluate the interior, I may feel differently about that. There are a couple that I, I would like to do that with, and, and I might make some changes about how I would, um, or it should be considered that there would be changes that would be made, um, that that would be possible in terms of what's contributing, what's not, what's um, key contributing, so on and so forth. Um, there should be preparation of a nomination. It's a big, long, formal document that's full of images, full of uh, data, full of maps, and all kinds of supporting documentation. And then it, it goes through a standard review process that is um, People in, in the city, of course, would review the city, the state, the Historic Preservation Commission, and so on. But the formal process really is it's submitted to the State Historic Preservation Office. They review it. Um, they would talk to the, um, the 
person doing the nomination about the, how they see the changes that would need to be done to it. Those changes are then made. It goes back to the state. They might say, yeah, that works, but I really think that you need m more here. And so the, the nomination um, preparer would make those changes. Once the state historic preservation office reviewers say, yeah, we, we're comfortable that the case has been made, then it's reviewed by the state nomination review committee, which meets three times a year. If they sign off on it, then it goes to the National Park Service, and it's reviewed by the National Park Service. So it is a um, typically a year process for a historic district. It could be a year and a half easily. So um, just to give you a notion about how that plays out. Um, the other thing that I recommend is that the city take a look at the, the um, landmarking, um, either the entire district, a portion of the proposed um, National Register district, um, taking a look at the contributing, the individually eligible resources, which are eligible for landmark status, and the key contributing buildings, which are also eligible for landmark status, and proceeding with um, landmarking those resources. Um, and I just put this up as a reminder, so those that would be eligible for a landmark would be within the historic district and um, in addition to the um, Carnegie Library, which is outside that boundary, um, and they would be red or gold here. Um, kind of talk through that. And then, um, the, when, I, when I said that, uh, there were conversations with people about um, this process and what their concerns or questions might be. One of the things that came up over and over again is that the city needs to provide, a, a, to be a resource. You know, um, understanding the process of rehabilitating buildings or understanding the National Register can be a tricky process. And people don't want to be left out there dangling around um, not knowing what to do. So um, my recommendation is that the city proactively um, facilitates the historic rehabilitation by providing the information and the resources that are, that are needed to make that possible. Um, I think there are important things about um, historic preservation or historic rehabilitation that are separate from the whole money issue. Um, you hear over and over again, if you're following or if you're in certain circles, that, that the best green building is rehabilitation of existing historic buildings. Um, and so that is certainly an approach to helping people understand the value of rehabilitating over demolition and reconstruction. Um, there are also things like um, application of international existing building code, which takes into consideration that a historic building may, uh, by necessity, not be able to follow current building codes. So there is some um, um, variation that's allowed that sometimes people that have a historic building say, I, you know, I can't rehabilitate it because I'm not going to be allowed by code to do the things that I need to do. There are some avenues to loosening those reins a little bit. And I'm not an architect and I'm not a, a contractor and so um, I, I know those by association as opposed to um, applying those issues myself. But they're, they do exist and they're used all the time. Um, and, and also um, promoting other, any other zoning code that might benefit their um, retention of historic buildings. Um, 
all, always looking for ways to help property owners make financial sense of retaining their historic buildings is really important. Um, the historic tax credits, of course, are um, the, the one that I have mentioned multiple times. They've been widely used in the state of Iowa and across the country to significant success. Um, the numbers of, of um, money generated, um, buildings saved, jobs created is uh, outstanding, and you can find information about that um, through the Iowa Economic Development Authority, um, many other sources. And then I think it's important that the city continue to seek out other entities to, to partner with. The State Historic Preservation Office is a very important state um, partnership. The Iowa Economic Development Authority, they have all kinds of um, guidance and programs for supporting economic development and rehabilitation of um, historic housing or historic building stock. And, and the here locally, the Iowa City Downtown District, of course, has um, intimate knowledge of the challenges that are being faced by retailers downtown and the importance of keeping those buildings and that the downtown viable. I mean, we know that if the downtown doesn't stay viable, you know, having empty historic buildings isn't going to do anybody any good. And so a continued conversation, and, and they've been a partner in this process and a very important one, and I think it's um, certainly key that that uh, remains true. Um, so this is just a list of the things that are part of the report, and they're all um, been on the website, which here's the address. And um, you can access that and also all of the um, support documents. So um, when I did the research for individual building, if I downloaded Sanborn maps or historic images, those are all organized by folder by building. So if you have your own building and you want the site form and the support documentation, lots of time I also downloaded city directories or newspapers. Let me tell you, I love living in the age of <laughs> online access, it's really an amazing tool that I never cease to be amazed about and appreciative of. But those are also available through the city. Um, I'm sure that Jessica could help you find those things. So quickly, um, thank you. Jessica Bristow has been a, um, an amazing support person. Bob Micklow, who I don't know if he's here tonight, but he was um, the planner that was in charge of this project um, until he ran for it. <laughs> um, I, maybe I wore them out. Um, the Historic Preservation Commission has been an important part of this, and for the bulk of the project, um, Jenilee Swaim was the chair. Um, she, I, I made that joke about the semicolons because she did, my, did editing for me, um, which I learned all kinds of things. Um, and also, uh, when I did the presentation in September, I had only begun to see the, the absolute endless amount of historic resources that are available on this city. The number of historic photographs is absolutely mind-bending. Um, and, and so those, um, the, the public library and the um, State Historical Society are both so critical to helping us understand um, what treasures we have left here. Um, thank you to Nancy Bird, who was uh, facilitated the meeting in November, and she's also remained in conversation about this process. Um, the other thing I saw is there, you know, there are there are a number of prof professional architectural historians, archaeologists, and historians who live in your community, 
um, or who have come here and done work like Marla Svensson did. And they have created a record and a foundation for the work that I do or that anybody else who follows does. And they've done um, really important things here. And, and I thank them for that. Um, then there's also a lot of people, local historians, who have a passion um, for their community and for the buildings in their community. I use Mary Beth Sloniger's book, um, Finials, was, was a wonderful publication. Um, Bobby Jett loaned me a then, uh, then and Now book, which was also very helpful. Um, and I know there are a number, a number of historians who have focused on work like the IXL building. Um, and, and those were all things that became tools in this process. I'm grateful for that. Um, and again, the number of people who have talked to me about their vision. So, with that, does anybody have questions? Um, what we're going to do, if it works, is um, Jessica and Anne will have hand mics. So if you have a question, if you could stand up and um, they'll come to you and um, we'll do what we can. Winter is coming and the President of the United States will be going to Mar-a-Lago. Someone comes to his dinner table and says, I own a whole lot of property in downtown Miami, and the taxes are killing me. I'd like to do something about that, but I understand there are lots of regulations. Is there any legislation to prevent him from turning around and signing an executive order abolishing the regulations that are in place? You, I don't know. I wish I had an answer for you. Um, I'm going to try really hard not to even think about that. But um, are you asking whether or not there's legislation in place specific to Iowa and Iowa City that would be relevant? Is that? Or national. Something to protect the National Park Service from being bullied. Well, I'm afraid that I'm out of my element on that one. You'll have to forgive me for that. I had a question about the Ped Mall and Black Hawk Mini Park. So if there is a local overlay and a property owner wants to change the facade, there's a process about the exterior. What does it mean for those public spaces if it's part of the designated, if there's a local overlay? Well, and now that's a really interesting question. So. Um, so if we're talking that the Ped Mall, if the Ped Mall was on the National Register, and, and including Blackhawk Park, which that's part of the Ped Mall, it was um, attached or became part of the urban renewal process kind of at the end, right, to save it. And, um, and so if any of the property owners made alterations to the facades, if there was a lo local or, uh, overlay, whether or not the alterations would be reviewed in their impact on the integrity of the space, essentially. Is that what you're getting at, Karen? Uh, I'm thinking about there's every 15, 20 years, there's a redo of the Ped Mall okay. to update it. What does yeah. it mean for the Ped Mall itself, not the facades that are on the Ped Mall, but for the public spaces themselves in terms of the city wanting to make updates, changes, rehabs, as is going on right now? Okay, so this is a, and this is a critical thing about the Ped Mall, and, and frankly, I've thought over and over about the Ped Mall, um, because the Ped, the Ped Mall has changed. It's changing now. It's going to change again, right? And so, um, 
my, my position about the ped mall is this, and that is that the central character-defining feature of the ped mall is its absence of features that defined it, that previously defined it as a vehicular roadway. Okay, so what that means is there's no public sidewalk, there are no gutters, there are no curbs, there's flat pavement. The pavement runs flush to the buildings. Um, the, that feature as a central defining character um, is intact and remains intact even if the materials change. And so, um, in, in my opinion, the ped mall remains um, a viable contributing resource because it remains a ped mall, essentially. Um, we know that um, it, in some ways it's like um, the, the storefronts. The storefronts have changed over time because their function required that they change over time in order for them to remain viable part of the community. Ped Mall in some ways is the same, and, and even more so because it's an outdoor feature, it's deteriorated by being an outdoor feature. So the benches and the plantings and the pots, all of those things become deteriorated over time and they require replacement. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with PV Park in Minneapolis. It's next to the Orchestra Hall. It's a 1970s era, brutalist um, outdoor um, landscape feature that had terracing, so it's concrete and terraced. It was designed, all of its features, by a prominent architect, and its features the elements, the fountains, the materials were all part of what created its historic significance. And when, a, what, two years ago, there was a proposal to do a major overhaul of PV Plaza, it ended up in a lawsuit. And the reason, the difference between the Ped Mall in Iowa City and a space like PV Plaza is that the features itself are what define that space. In the Ped Mall, it's the fact that it's a ped mall. And we, I believe that a case can be made that it is a known, it's known to be evolving and to continue to evolve, just like a storefront would. That's my position about it. Does that answer it? Yeah, actually, just to piggyback on Karen's question a little bit, um, I just want your thoughts on if, you know, the ped mall, Blackhawk Mini Park, are part of the historic district, would then design review, if it were a local uh, local historic district, be under the purview of the Historic Preservation Commission, or would it still be handled primarily through staff as it is now for those types of changes? Well, I think that's a, a question for the city. Okay. Um, and one of them's right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a second question, though, yeah. and that's regards uh, at least with um, residential properties, we've had a lot of luck with people being able to uncover their facades and being very surprised to find that a lot of the original features are underneath. Some of the old timers in town do think that some of these facades, especially up on the first couple uh, 100, 200 blocks of Washington Street might actually be fairly intact behind some of those uh, more modern facades that now make them non-contributing. Mm -hmm. um, your thoughts on those becoming contributing uh, as part of the district later on or um, not? What would your thought on that be? Well, I'll answer that first and then I'll let Jessica and uh, ask answer your first question. So in the case that, say, say a National Re Register District is in place 
and um, a person will use the building, the, the building with the white facade, metal facade, right? That's the obvious um, um, example, right? If that property owner decided that they were interested in doing historic rehabilitation, so, and it's a non-contributing resource, um, two things can happen. Specific to the National Register of Historic Places, if, if they did the work, and it turned out that the facade was underneath and its integrity was reestablished, then there could be an amendment to the historic district that would include them as a contributing resource. If um, before that they wanted to um, do a historic tax credit project, they could apply separately, but they would have to provide enough evidence so they would um, selectively remove sections, if possible, of the facade to make the case that enough of the building remains intact behind that once the work is done, it will be an eligible resource. And that's a tricky process, but it is possible. But yes, uh, certainly relative to the National Register, it could be amended to add that. Um, and often the other thing that happens, which wouldn't be the case here because we're making a case for the, the urban renewal stuff, but if there was a building that um, was um, not 50 years old when it became 50 years old, it also could be amended to be included in the district. And your, your answer? So as far as the local guidelines would go, they would be based on the Secretary of the Interior's standards for rehabilitation, but as a community, we would have to decide how we apply that to our downtown. So the guidelines that would be used to uh, review projects downtown would be based on those uh, from the National Park Service, but we don't know yet as a community what they would be. There are many other communities who have set up guidelines for commercial properties, and it is highly likely that we would look at some of those, what has worked, how would they apply to our community or not, because we have our own unique buildings. The pedestrian mall itself, to me, I think that that, like Alexa said, it is something that is going to change, but the review of that would be, um, I guess, not a staff level review thing. I think that that would automatically have to be reviewed by the commission because of how it would impact the, the pedestrian mall and the larger area of the district. At least that's what my gut feeling is. Just a comment, a couple of comments actually. Um, if your urban renewal context starts at 1970, mm -hmm. by the time this would be on the National Register, it would not need exceptional significance. It'd yeah. be 50 years old. But also, the front end. Right. I mean, I would set it, well, okay. Um, and also, what's your contributing, non-contributing count? If you throw in what's already on the register, what, you know, just that, that very basic count. You know, I should have that number for you, and I don't. I'll have to send it to you. What, well, what are you thinking? Regarding the Carnegie Library, I would encourage you to reconsider leaving it out. So try I to think, get the Well, I the think boundary there's two in. ways you could draw a boundary okay. to include it. One, go right down the property line on the east side. Yeah. But maybe the more defensible one would be just to take it down the alley, okay. the, the east-west alley, you're bringing in 
it looks like four non-contributing right. properties. But if your count, you know, is sufficient to yeah. to handle that, and it would be, and I, I think a lot of people would be much happier to see the Carnegie in in, yeah. in the now. You also run the risk of never getting an, never having it listed individually yes. if it's out. Yeah, very good point. And let me just expand on what Jan is getting at, and that is is that when when you um, when you draw the boundaries for a national re registered district, you count, right? There's this many contributing resources, which include the, the national register listed resources, the individually eligible resources, and the contributing resources, and against the number of non-contributing resources. And what you need to maintain, there's not a hard and fast rule about that, but clearly you can't have 60% non-contributing and 40% contributing. So the count is really he heavy to contributing resources. So what she's saying is, is that if the boundary was modified to include the Carnegie. My concern was that when you did that, you brought in all of these extra non-contributing resources. But her point is well made, and that is, is that if the count is strong for contributing resources, um, then, then it might be um, no risk to bring in extra non-contributing resources in order to get the Carnegie into the district. Does that make sense? And, and because it's important building, it'd be worth um, revisiting that, and I think that's a very good point. Anything else, Jan? Thank you. Yeah, Josh. Oh, sure. I was curious about some of the other non-building resources that might be attached to the Ped Mall, specifically little alleyways and joints. If those are, I haven't read your report yet, if those are part of, of that analysis, and then also one unique um, non-building resource would be the non-alley condition behind the Clinton Street grouping of buildings. Yeah. That alley space is, is really bizarre and unique to Iowa City, and I was curious what your thoughts were on that and if that made it into here. No. It doesn't mean it shouldn't have. So um, that would be certainly something to add to the look at this if there's a National Register district going forward. The, the, uh, my boundaries for the Ped Mall were really related um, to the work that was completed as part of the urban renewal. I did not address, in particular, the walkway that's between the hotel and the college block. But those, those sorts of loose bits and pieces, those certainly should be part of um, additional analysis as, as part of a National Register nomination because um, th those both are pieces that are, they should be part of it. You're right about that. I have a comment rather than a question. So we're talking about roughly a half dozen blocks and I find it quite moving and compelling, frankly, that this small condensed area of our town still holds, um, you know, the history when we got downtown by horse or by walking or moved around by streetcar and then we accommodated automobiles and now we're accommodating a pedestrian <laughs> encouragement of pedestrians again with the pedestrian mall and uh, I it's just 
it's just darn wonderful <laughs> to see history that we still have this, you know, and that there is so much there and when it starts to get uncovered and we understand the meaning behind it and that this is not just buildings but it's also how people move through an area and, and the, the intersections and the thoroughfares and whether walking or rolling or, or driving or whatever. Anyway, I just, um, I've, I've been part of this process for a while and seeing it uh, moving along and, and synopsized tonight is, is, makes me feel good about this town, so thanks. You know, the one thing I'd add to that, Jenna Lee, because I, I know you like the stories, you know, and, I, and sometimes because I focus on buildings, I don't say enough about the stories, but one of the things that you learn when you research a building or you research a downtown is, is the amazing things that, well, how much has changed and how much has stayed the same. So that, the building that we were talking about with the, with the white front, you know, there was a livery in the back, and, and, and you know, part of that building was a passageway, right? So they took the, they took the, um, the wagons through there into the livery in the back. You know, and so to think that there was a time that, that that's what dominated what people were doing, was they were taking care of their horses, and they were fixing the wheels on their wagons, and there were women who were osteopaths, and there were um, women making hats, milliners, all over the place, and there were seamstresses, and there were um, drugstores, and there all, all of these things that, that, I mean, my daughter's 28 years old, and, and I'm certain that there are some of those things that it never occurred to her even existed, you know? And so when we stop talking about those things as part of our evolution as people and as humans and as commercial people and as architects and all of that stuff, it really is, I think it's really a loss. And so when you look at the histories, look for those things, there's all kinds of really um, fun, funny stories and, and, and interesting people. Um, and you realize how vibrant the community has been for a long time. Um, I have two questions um, that are kind of related um, to, well, I guess I'm used to reviewing residential properties, and so I'm curious how some of this might be handled. Um, one question would be if there's, let's say I'm a property owner and I have a building where the shell of that building is 1890 or something, mm -hmm. and the facade of it was redone in 1950, and there's, so there's a site inventory form for all that, those changes to the building. And we run into this with houses a lot, where there are alterations to the houses that happened in 1980 that we consider bad, and then alterations that happened in 1950 that might also be bad, but bear historic significance, I guess. And so I'm curious if a building has a facade change that is over 50 years, which is this arbitrary number from the origins of these uh, policies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if it's in, if it's brought in with that facade, and I want to change it back to the 1890 facade, um, is that possible, or am I erasing that integrity of a facade from 1950 that actually is awful but bears bears historical significance? I guess. So that's my first question, and the other question has to do with the 
the other side of the building, which would be, let's say, on that same building, I had, this is related a little bit to Josh's question, maybe. Mm -hmm. Let's say the building is perfectly intact. It's from 1890, and everything is great about it. Um, but nobody uses the rear half of the building, and I want to, because, or whatever, I want to open up the back and have a restaurant in the back, and I want to put windows in the back walls of it and everything. So when we have residential properties, there's the rear side of the building is a lot more forgiving, um, but we view those houses usually in three dimensions, whereas we, you know, the commercial buildings have this street-facing facade and nothing else really matters, theoretically. So I'm curious what the possibility for that kind of evolution of the building is over time as well, if it was a local landmark and a national register spot. So the way I'd like to do this is, let me talk about it from the National Register perspective, um, and particularly um, historic tax credits. And then, and then I'll ask Jessica to talk about it from this perspective, from, from a local perspective. So um, specifically in, in, in the example where there is a um, 1888 building and a, a mid-century facade, and the owner would like to return the, the um, original facade. First of all, um, the, the idea that the facade has its own um, sense of integrity because of its age, um, that's real. Um, and typically, the National Park Service, if you were getting historic tax credits, would want you to honor that. Um, but the, the key here is what is the period of significance. So when I do a historic tax credit application, um, I have a property that I'm working on in Independence right now, and the building was built in 1876, and the storefronts are 1950s. Now, I just started this, but my sense of it, because the property owner wants to re return the storefronts to their original appearance, that I can make a case that the significance ends before the alteration, in which case then the property owner has the freedom to make the alteration back to the period of significance. Now, you can't always do that. It has to, it has to make sense. It has to be truthful. Um, in this case, the upper stories are all dating to the, to the date the building was built, and what, what hasn't changed is the storefront. So the period of significance, by logic, is the year it was constructed, okay? So, so there are nuances about the building. So you have to evaluate each one of those. On the face, they try, try to get you to consider that the alteration may be historic and so should be respected and not changed. The other thing, uh, but, but there's a way to work with that. The other thing is, what's the condition of the alteration? And not just is it an aesthetic, aesthetic, aesthetically unappealing, but sometimes it's a material that isn't going to last much longer. Um, and there were a lot of experimental sort of materials um, at different periods in time that, some, that have degraded. And so there's a case to be made from that perspective. So there, it is a conversation. It is a thinking, OK, what's going to work for the property owner? What makes sense for the building of those things? Um, what was the second part? Oh, the rear of the building. So yeah, yeah, rear, rears are uh, in commercial buildings and in residential buildings are secondary. 
So there is much more leeway about alterations that are made to the rear. I'll point out while I'm thinking about it that if you have a building that's on a corner, that both elevations are considered primary elevations and so you can't do whatever you want to that secondary. But certainly in like that pocket that we were talking about, there's some um, room for maneuvering about how, how do you make that space um, function better, look better, be more viable. So there's um, a, lot of, a lot more room there. So as far as a local review goes, I, many of the things would be similar to what Alexa said, because ultimately a goal with any set of guidelines on a, a local district would be to retain the historic material and the historic integrity. Again, though, a local district could have a different boundary than a National Register district. And so when that boundary is being determined before the designation happens, part of it is talking about what is the story that we're trying to tell with the boundary we pick for a local district. If our boundary ends up not embracing urban renewal, then maybe that period of significance again does not extend quite up to the point where the more modern facade matters a lot to us. We develop that as a part of our guidelines. Maybe it does matter to us. I think if I was personally to review something like that, I would also ask, does any of the material for the original facade exist under the change so that it would be possible to maybe go back and retain that historic material? Is it all gone so we'd be recreating some kind of sense of history that may or may not be false? Do we have photos that show us what it looks like? Or are we just guessing? And so I think, like Alexa said, again, it's a conversation and it does have something to do with what do our local guidelines say, but it also depends on what our story is for downtown. I want to know what's next. What is the next step to, to take this forward? Who, who is going to step up to continue this? Uh, I've been in Emerald City for a long period of time, and we have discussed some of these things in years past, and nothing has happened. Uh, I don't want this to fade into the sunset again. So what, who is going to take the next step, or what is going to happen to carry this forward? And maybe I can speak to that. Um, tomorrow morning, we're gonna, Alexa is going to present the same presentation to our city council. And so we'll be asking for direction from the city council on next steps to, and how to, how to proceed based on Alexa's recommendations. Is it possible to have a parallel process of doing a a national registry area and a local overlay? Or does it have to be sequential? It can happen at the same time. Uh, they would both be lengthy processes. For the local district, the lengthy part would be the community outreach and discussion that needs to happen. Um, they could start at the same time, the National Register process could happen, and then we could take on a local thing a little bit later on. Um, it, they don't have to go in a specific order. Anyone else? 
Okay. Thank you, really, for being here tonight, for being interested in the process. I appreciate it.